Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, hey, everybody. My name is Jeremy Moore, pastor of Discipleship. And as Nathan said, it's hard to believe that it's the Sunday before Christmas. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Does it, it's crazy. Does anyone else feel like Thanksgiving was like a week ago? It feels like it was like maybe a week ago. Uh, I was preparing this teaching. I was thinking about Thanksgiving. And this little story came to mind that I think illustrates kind of the, the tone of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. So my son Hudson is five years old. We have uh, teens, we have adults, and then we have a late-breaking son. With the teens, adults, there were ladies. And we have a late-breaking son, Hudson. And I said first service, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And so we had a late-breaking son. That was a surprise. Um, you know, just a blessing. But I was out getting some ingredients, some last-minute ingredients for Thanksgiving meal. And um, I, I kind of just was like passing by this one aisle. And like it caught my eye, this little airliner, this little like uh, jumbo jet, like a little die-cast jumbo jet. And I was like, wow. I was like, you know what? It's Thanksgiving. I'm just going to get that for my son. I don't know why or like I don't know what the moment's going to be that I'm going to give it to him. I'm just going to get that for him. And so kind of picked up this little jumbo jet. And I came home and I found out what that was about. Because there was a moment when I came up on the back deck of our house and my wife just came out the sliding door and my son Hudson was crying and crying and crying about something that had happened that morning and he was all upset. And I thought, I see what it's for now. I see what the, the jumbo jet moment is. And so I reached into my coat a little over dramatically and I was just like, Hudson, I was like, would you like a Thanksgiving surprise? And he kind of stopped, he stopped crying and he kind of was like, yes. So I pulled out this little jumbo jet and literally, like, the corner of his, his mouth turned up, his eyes lit up, and he was just like, jumbo jet, and he just grabbed this jumbo jet, and he was just flying it around the house and making the jet noises and stuff. It was just this moment when his crying turned to delight. That's exactly the shift that we see in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. It's a passage that starts with weeping, and it actually shifts to rejoicing. To best see that, we're actually going to take a look at where we've been over the last couple of weeks. So just a couple of minutes of recap. So two weeks ago, uh, Nathan led us through Revelation chapter 4. And in Revelation chapter 4, John, who's the writer of Revelation, has this vision of heaven. A door opens into heaven, and heaven is pictured as the Old Testament temple, but it's kind of a heavenly version of it. So you see all of these symbols and things from the temple, but it's sort of like this glorified heavenly version of it in the vision. And you see there's um, lightning and thunder and rainbows around God's throne, and there's just splendor. Um, God is shining in his majesty. He's like a jewel, and he's sitting on his throne. And around God's throne are these four living creatures. And when you read the book of Revelation, you're like, what in the world are these living creatures? These things are weird. Um, but they seem to represent the four directions, north, south, east, west. There's all kinds of stuff in Revelation about the four directions or the four winds. That's a symbol that's repeated over and over. So it's, the, the reference seems to be all of creation, north, south, east, west, every direction, all of creation. So you see all of creation worshiping the Lord. And day and night, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
Also in the vision, you have these 24 elders that surround the throne, and they sit on thrones of their own. The 24 elders seem to represent the whole people of God. So we got the whole creation and the whole people of God. The reason the 24 elders seem to represent the whole people of God is you have 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, so 12 plus 12 is 24. They seem to be the representative heads of the whole people of God through the ages. So they sit on these thrones, and day and night they worship the Lord for his grace and greatness. So you have this splendor, this majesty, this wonder. So it's a beautiful scene, but then we get to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, some tension is introduced into the scene. Now, John Ciada spoke on chapter 5, verses 1 to 6 last week. So I'm just going to give a brief recap of that. In verses 1 and 2, John sees a scroll in God's right hand. And it's sealed with seven seals. Now, probably very much, John shared with us, probably very much like an official Roman document. You know, that an official would drop a drop of wax on and would kind of seal the document with a seal. And so John sees this seal, this scroll with seven seals. And an angel cries out in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now look with me at uh, Revelation 5, verses 3 and 4. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. So what's this scroll about? And what are these seals that are on the scroll? What, what is this all about? And why does John weep and weep and weep? Now, I mean, more than once, it says he wept and wept, okay, emphasizes lots of weeping. Like, what was his grief all about? To see the answer to that, we need to take a step even farther back, take a look at the theme of persecution of followers of Jesus in the book of Revelation. So, so far, we've gotten a number of indications that this is a time of heavy persecution for followers of Jesus during the time that the book of Revelation was written. Just a couple of examples. In chapter 1, verse 9, John introduces himself as your partner in suffering. So he says to his readers, I'm your partner in suffering. And he reminds them that the whole reason why he's exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation, is he says, I'm there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm here because of my faith in Jesus, he reminds his readers. We get to chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, so we looked at seven letters over the course of the fall, and one of them was to the church in Smyrna. He says to the church in Smyrna that they are about to suffer, and he tells them to be faithful even to the point of death. Then we get to chapter 2, verse 13, and we get a specific example of someone who's named by name who dies because of their faith in Jesus. They're put to death because of their faith in Jesus. So to those in Pergamum, Jesus actually says, he praises them for being faithful even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. So Antipas is mentioned by name. He was put to death for his faith in Jesus. And then lest we think those are kind of isolated examples, if you go just beyond chapter 5, there is this really moving scene where there are all of these martyrs below the, the heavenly altar of God, and they cry out to him, and this is their prayer. They say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And so here we discover the answer to the question, 
Like, what is this scroll and what are these seals? The answer is they are God's response to the evil and injustice that's caused pain and suffering for his people. So the scroll is the answer to the prayer. And it's a prayer that is not even on the lips of God's people yet until chapter 6, but the scroll in chapter 5 is the answer to the question. Within the scroll was God's plan to deal with evil and injustice. Within the scroll was everything that needed to unfold for a sin-sick creation to be purified so it could become the new heavens and the new earth, a creation that, where there was no more pain or mourning or suffering or dying. So John cries and cries at the thought that history is stuck. It's stuck in this cycle of pain and suffering caused by the evil and oppression of those who are persecuting the church. He felt the grief of that persecution, and he felt it for his brothers and sisters in Christ. But then comes Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, which is kind of a hinge that shifts the tone. It shifts from crying to rejoicing. Take a look with me, Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And so we see that the answer to the dilemma that there's no one to open the scroll is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the Lamb of God. These are all names for Jesus from the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who the Father has given authority to break the seals and to open the scroll. He's the one who the Father has given authority to deal with the evil and injustice in the world and to move history towards its hopeful and beautiful climax, which God has always intended for it. So now we arrive this morning at verses 7 to 10 of Revelation 5. And I'm going to invite Emmanuel up to read it. It's on, while he, while he comes, there he is. While Emmanuel comes up to read it, take a look at that passage. If you haven't already turned to Revelation 5, go ahead and do that. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's actually a Bible in front of you in the chair under your seat in front of you. It's on page 1918 in that Bible, if you want to take a look in that Bible. Emmanuel? The book of the, of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 5, um, verse 7 to 10. He went and took the straw from the hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Everyone had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the throne and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you have purchased for God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they would reign on the earth. Amen. Thanks, Emmanuel. As we unpack this passage, you'll see there's significant connections to the Christmas story. So listen for some of the ways we'll highlight some connections to the Christmas story as this passage unfolds. Uh, first, point number one, let, heaven, let earth receive her king. Let earth receive her king. The old Christmas hymn that we just sang, Joy to the World, resounds, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth 
receive her king. This is very much a passage about the chosen king. Um, Verse 7 that you'll see has some significant connections to Jesus as the king. Now, we heard this in Revelation 1, verse 5. John opened the book by calling Jesus the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then he picks up on that here in chapter 5, verse 7. He says this, he, Jesus, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So Jesus takes the scroll from God the Father who's sitting on the throne being worshiped in heaven. Now, this is an image that comes right out of Daniel chapter 7. There's an image, a vision in Daniel chapter 7, and the vision communicates that there was one like a son of man. That's what Daniel calls him, one like a son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven. And he was given authority to rule the nations. We'll take a quick look at it, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. As you listen, know this. All throughout the New Testament, over and over, the writers keep pointing to the fact that Jesus is this one who's like a son of man. As a matter of fact, Jesus even called himself the son of man during his ministry, referring back to this vision in Daniel. Jesus called himself the fulfillment of this, and over and over, the New Testament writers keep insisting that Jesus is the fulfillment of this vision. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, in my vision at night... I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, so he approached God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All right, so very clearly, like God hands Jesus the authority to rule the nations. He hands him the authority over history. Now, as soon as we read that one like a son of man was coming on the clouds, I think that one of the things that it makes us think of immediately is like, I I guess this is a vision about Jesus's second advent. So Nathan was just talking about Jesus's second advent. Now, all through the New Testament, a clear teaching is that Jesus will come visibly and gloriously at the climax of history. He'll come again, the second advent. But the vision is not about that. And I'll tell you why. Because when Jesus comes the second time, he's going to come from heaven to earth. And in this vision, it's exactly the opposite. Okay, his coming on the clouds isn't coming on the clouds from heaven to earth. The scene takes place in God's throne room. It takes place in heaven. And Jesus actually comes on the clouds from earth to heaven. He comes into the throne room of God. He is given all sovereign power to rule the nations. He's appointed at the place of honor next to God's right hand, which is the place of honor in Scripture, the place next to God's right hand. He's, he's crowned king. He's coronated king. So this is actually a reference to Jesus' ascension. Over and over, the New Testament writers keep pointing to the fact that when Jesus ascended, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, the place of honor next to the Father. And he is there right now ruling as king. Uh, Now, this is all throughout the New Testament. I'll show you just one little place that draws attention to it. Uh, Do you guys remember the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7? Stephen... Well, gave this big, long speech to the religious authorities. And at the end of the speech, they declared him a blasphemer and because of his faith in Jesus. 
and they picked up stones to execute him. And Luke tells us this, as they picked up stones to execute him, here's what we hear about Stephen. Acts 7, verses 55 and 56. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Do you see what Stephen is saying? He essentially said, just like Daniel prophesied, the Son of Man is at the place of honor, ruling next to the throne of God the Father. And his dying words were to look up to heaven and to say, like, Jesus still rules. I'm getting pelted by stones here and dying for my faith. And Jesus is still king. This would have been incredibly encouraging to people in the ancient world, that Jesus was presently king even over these circumstances, that there was a king that was more powerful than Caesar, that was more gracious than Caesar, and that was more, had more authority than Caesar, a king over all kings. It's Jesus, not Caesar, that has been given the authority to guide history to its sovereignly ordained conclusion. It's beautiful, hopeful conclusion. It is Jesus, not Caesar, who will bring the tragedy and the chaos to its hopeful climax. Let earth receive her king. Let earth receive her king. And then secondly, gloria in excelsis Deo. Gloria in excelsis Deo. The old Christmas hymn resounds, gloria in excelsis Deo, which means glory to God in the highest heaven. So there's a grandeur and a wonder to the passage that we're looking at this morning that resonates with kind of the DNA of the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 2, the angels announce with splendor and majesty the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. This, we, we get a tone here in Revelation 5 very similar to that, the proclamation of the worthiness of the king. Look at Revelation 5 verses 8 and 9. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Now, as the original readers of Revelation heard this, they very likely couldn't have missed the references to worship in the Old Testament temple that you hear in this passage. In the Old Testament, uh, there were those who were set apart to serve in the temple. Uh, Levites were appointed to lead worship with harps and lyres and trumpets and drums. And so the original readers of Revelation would have heard these references and thought of this glorious worship in the temple. And the priests tended the altar of incense where they burned incense that rose up to God's throne and represented God's prayers, represented the prayers of the people ascending to God's throne like a sweet-smelling aroma. What's significant in this passage is John is applying these symbols to all of God's people, whereas in the Old Testament, these were specific roles for serving in the temple. John applies these to all of God's people. In essence, he says, like what God's trajectory is for everyone, all of his people is to be, are to be worshipers. John is saying that people like you and me who are born worshipers of self, through relationship with Jesus, we're becoming worshipers of God once again, like human beings were always created to be. How does this transformation take place? 
How does this transformation take place from worshipers of self to worshipers of God once again? Point three, God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. Let earth earth receive her king, Gloria in excelsis Deo. And thirdly, God and sinners reconciled. The old Christmas hymn resounds, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. So in this vision, all of creation and all of God's people, day and night are worshiping the Lord for his worthiness. Why? Why are they worshiping the Lord for his worthiness? The answer in the passage is because he died to reconcile sinners to God. Take a look at Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 once again. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Now for John's readers, this language of being purchased would have made them think of something dark, first of all. But then it would have actually made them think of something so beautiful. They would have thought of Greco-Roman slavery. This whole idea of if somebody couldn't pay their debts, then they had, they had no other choice but to become a slave in the person's household that they owed, and they would have to work off every cent that they owed. Now, there was a way out of that. Somebody actually could purchase them, but then by all legal rights, they would then become the slave in the other person's household. And so John says something beautiful and countercultural here. He says, think of that situation. And he says, Jesus is like the benefactor that purchased us, except he didn't purchase us with money. He purchased us with his blood. He traded his life for our life. And when he did that, he had every legal right for us to be a slave in his household. But rather than a slave, he's thrown the robe of honor on us. He's given us the status of his children. He's adopted us into his family. He's made us his co-heirs and his co-rulers. Can you believe how rich in mercy God is? He had every legal right for us to be slaves, but instead he's adopted us as his children. And as we recognize this new status that Jesus earned for us, as we recognize it as our true identity, and as we lean into our true identity, God grows us. God grows us. He transforms us from worshipers of self to worshipers of God. And as we grow into worshipers of God, we don't grow into worshipers of God merely for our own benefit, but this is then something that flows beyond us And it's a blessing beyond us to all of creation. Let earth receive her king, Gloria in excelsis Deo, God and sinners reconciled. And lastly, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. The old Christmas hymn resounds, no more let sin and sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Did you hear what the old hymn is saying? As much as things have been ruined, soiled, infected by sin, to that degree, through Jesus Christ, God's grace is restoring. And the old hymn is right. Nathan often says this, we're not end users of the gospel. And so God reconciles people to himself, yes, so that they can be reconciled to him, but as they walk in relationship with him, reconciled relationship. 
God then grows them into people who worship him. The more they worship him, the more they can be a conduit for his blessing to flow beyond them to creation as a whole, to all that God has made and all the people that God has made. Let's talk about just a few ways in the passage that we see that at work, that as we walk in reconciled relationship with God, that we are his conduits of blessing beyond us. First, as we walk in reconciled relationship with God, he moves us from me to we. He moves us from me to we. Look again at Revelation 5, 9. The reason that Jesus is worthy is because he purchased with his blood people, quote, from every tribe and language and people and nation. We often think about the most significant we. We have the impression the most significant we that we're a part of is our nation or our neighborhood or our ethnic heritage or people who are culturally like us. This passage comes against that powerfully. It says the most significant we that you and I are a part of is the global body of Christ. The most significant we that we're a part of is we are united with our brothers and sisters in Christ, even from other cultures, through our faith in him. And so whatever our many cultural differences might be, what we share by being united to Jesus is more significant than whatever our cultural differences are. So Don and Nathan were mentioning the ministry partner, Stan Bocoon. Um, I love Stan. I love all our partners. I happen to know Stan a little bit better than some of our partners. Actually, a number of years ago, Stan and his family lived with us for about six months. And I was emailing Stan the other day, just talking about some of the year-end giving stuff. And one of the things I just found myself saying as I thought about this passage is saying, Stan, you and I are very culturally different. Those differences are much less significant than what we have common in Christ through faith in him. And so as we are shaped by the spirit of God, as we walk in reconciled relationship with God, may we lean into not merely tolerating people who are culturally unlike us, but may we actually pursue people who are culturally unlike us. We heard updates from the Ukraine this morning. Sometimes I think when we're doing updates, somebody might visit and have the impression that the reason we do things like that is because maybe we want to be cute or trendy or woke, and that's not the reason we do it. The reason we do it is because Scripture teaches that God's trajectory for his creation is all nations, tribes, tongues, and people in worship of Jesus together. That's why we do it. And so if that's the trajectory of the new heavens and the new earth, we live the new creation in the here and now by seeing the global family of Christ as our most significant we and taking initiative to pursue people that are culturally unlike us. Yes, it's going to be work, but not only is it worth it, but it's in sync with where God is moving history. It's a way to live the new creation right now. If all languages, tribes, and tongues is how reality is going to be, then we must not merely tolerate people who are culturally unlike us. We must move toward them and see those whose faith are in Christ as spiritual family. Next, as we walk in reconciled relationship with God, he moves us from fixing to praying. 
So that's another example. As we walk in reconciled relationship with God, he moves us from fixing to praying. Now look at Revelation 5.10 again, referring to everyone in the body of Christ. John says, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This idea of a, of a kingdom and priests is right out of the Old Testament. So in Exodus, God expressed that there was a sense in which he always wanted his people to be priests, a community of priests. Well, what does that mean? Priests, one of the most significant roles of a priest is to represent the people to God. So one super practical way to be a priest is to pray for other people. Our human nature often prompts us to criticize or to fix people who have issues or challenges in our lives, what if we decided to pray for them instead? What if we decided to pray for the people that triggered us or have issues or challenges that come crashing into our own stuff? One of the, the things that stands out to me is about a year ago, a number of us read the book, A Praying Life. In a number of SR groups, we read and discussed the book, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I'm going to give you just a couple of really practical examples of praying for other people from that book. Uh, first, praying for your kids. Praying for your kids. Paul Miller writes, It took me 17 years to realize I couldn't parent on my own. It was not a great spiritual insight, just a realistic observation. If I didn't pray deliberately and reflectively for members of my family by name every morning, they'd kill one another. I was incapable of getting inside their hearts. As I began to pray regularly for the children, he began to work in their hearts. I didn't, it didn't take me long to realize I did my best parenting by prayer. I began to speak less to the kids and more and more to God. So what would it look like, those who are parents in the room, what would it look like to fix and criticize your kids less and pray for them more? What would that look like? Next, Paul gives an example of praying for your spouse, praying for your spouse, Paul, Paul writes, seldom do we pray seriously and thoughtfully for those we love as they deal with their besetting sins. For example, a husband will rarely ask God for his wife to become more like Jesus. Praying steadily for his wife will help him become more aware of her as a person. Watch what happens over time. By getting his ego out of the way, the husband makes room for the spirit to work in his wife's life. God will start doing things more effectively than the husband ever could. No one teaches like God. Over time, the husband may discover that his courage and wisdom are growing. He'll find the best phrasing, the best timing to be gently honest with his wife. He'll move from trying to win a battle to loving a friend. So those in the room who have spouses, what would it look like for you to say, I will criticize and fix my spouse less and I'll pray for them more and more? What would that look like? As we walk in reconciled relationship with God, he moves us from me to we. As we walk in reconciled relationship with God, he moves us from fixing to praying. And then one more example. As we walk in reconciled relationship with God, he moves us from image management to image bearing. From image management to image bearing. The other role of a priest, the first one I mentioned was representing people to God. The other role of a priest is representing God to people. And we see that. We see that tackled in the passage too. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, God's vision for human beings was that they be living, breathing representations of who he is. 
Adam and Eve, the first human beings, were created to be God's co-rulers, his image bearers, to be his conduit of blessing to the rest of creation. As we walk in relationship with God, he's recapturing in us that original purpose that God designed for human beings. He's growing us into living, breathing representations of him. We're growing out of our need to impress people, and we're growing into a heart posture of living courageously, living out the gospel in word and deed. As we live out the gospel, we see the fruit that's expressed in this passage. People come to faith in Christ, and people from every tribe, language, nation, and people turn to Jesus and are gathered into his global family. We started this message by saying that this was a passage that turns from weeping to rejoicing. Weeping because of the brokenness of this fallen world. The brokenness that the pain of reality often brings to our hearts. The chaos of history that we often see on the news. But we also said that this passage is a passage of rejoicing. The weeping turns to rejoicing because there is one who is able to break the seals and open the scroll. There is one who is guiding history to God's intended resolution. In our congregation, I've been in conversation with lots of you this season, and I'm just more aware than ever is that there's a lot of reasons that people have to weep this Christmas. Um, We heard just a little bit about it from Nathan this morning. We heard one example of loved ones who have passed away. It seems like More conversations than usual this season, people are saying, I have a loved one who passed away. Just before I actually came into the auditorium for first service, I was talking to somebody in Ridgeview and said, I have a loved one who passed away and my heart's broken. We have people who are dealing with ongoing family tensions. Um, We have people that are dealing with inexplicable health issues. We have people that are dealing in different ways with maybe a dream being dashed against the rocks. So many different things so many different things. And we, this is a church that we want to be a culture where people's grief process is welcome. Uh, we often say, Jesus wept. Jesus wept when his heart was broken. Do we think that we should be, do we think we should do other when our hearts are broken? The example that Jesus gave us is he wept, he let it out. This is a place that people's grief process is welcome. And yet, in the midst of that grief process, it's easy for me and it's easy for you to sort of take, take the reins and think we are the person who brings the healing, that we are the person who breaks the seals and opens the scroll on our own. We think we have the ability and the authority to do that. But Jesus is the only one who's been given the authority to break the seals and open the scroll. We think that maybe if we meet with the right counselor, if we get the right tools, if we sort of give it enough time, or if we put in enough initiative, then we'll be healed. We'll experience true and genuine healing. And those are all good things, but those were all created to be avenues for Jesus to be the source of healing. Those are avenues for Jesus's healing grace to be active. And so so ask yourself this holiday season, uh, if my heart is broken, if I have things that I'm weeping about, 
Are, are those things ways that I'm trying to sort of fix myself? Are they ways that I'm trying to break the seal and open the scrolls on my, break the scroll and open the seals on my own? Or are those ways that I'm leaning into God's healing grace? Because the reality is, the reality that this passage communicates to us as it leaps powerfully off the page is that only Jesus Christ, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb who was slain, he's the only one who God has given the authority to break the seals and open the scroll. He's the only one who can truly bring healing to history, and he's the only one who can truly bring healing to our broken hearts. Your weeping will turn to rejoicing, not because you've tried harder to break the seal and open the scroll. Your weeping will turn to rejoicing in his timing, through his grace, and by his power. I'd like to invite the worship team to the stage, and I want to share one more picture with you. On Wednesday night, we have SR Midweek, big interactive Bible study. We start up again in January. Love for anybody here to come. You're warmly invited. This fall, we actually studied Revelation 1 through 3, and we tracked with a documentary. The documentary actually had the same title as our message series, Trial and Triumph. And as we tracked with that documentary, the very last segment of it was this past Wednesday night for our wrap-up meeting. And one of the last things that was said in the documentary was this older pastor was interviewed. And he just gave such a moving example. He said, some people were on a ship in the South Seas when a storm came up, and it was really ripping and tearing. One of the passengers said, somebody needs to go talk to the captain. He came back and said, I have seen the captain's face, and all is well. I've seen the captain's face, and all is well. Last week, John Ciotta read the lyrics to the song, Is He Worthy? And he just read them so well, just so passionately. And I was like ready to sing that song after he read those lyrics. This morning, we're going to get to sing that song together. It'll be our affirmation of Jesus' worthiness. It'll be our affirmation that he is the one who is able to break the seals and open the scroll. So I want you to stand with me, sing in affirmation that uh, God has not forgotten us. He's not let go of us. He is guiding our lives and all of history to its hopeful, beautiful conclusion. Let's sing the song together.
promise it is is it good that we remind ourselves of
Lord, what an amazing thing that we are your people through faith in you. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of your unbelievable grace. God, we worship you. We acknowledge that you are the only one who can break the seal and open the scroll. You're the only one that can guide history to its hopeful, beautiful climax. You're the only one who can heal our hearts. You're the only one who can heal our broken world. God, because you laid down your life, you traded your life for ours. God, you are worthy. You purchased each of us, people from every nation and tribe and tongue and people, people from places like Ghana or Kenya or India, places people from places like the United States or the United Kingdom and more. God, people among us who have beautiful cultural differences that are all being drawn together around the worship of you, Lord. God, what a beautiful vision. And God, we are just blown away that the plans that you have for us are to be your living, breathing representatives and your priests that pray for each other and your co-rulers, God, who reign with you for eternity. And God, could we ask for anything more? And God, so we pray even for those in this room who are in a season of weeping. God, we just pray for grace. We pray for comfort through your spirit. We pray for dependence on you. We pray for genuine trust as they just lean on you in your time to break the seal and open the scroll. And God, we just pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So good to worship together. Merry Christmas. Hope to see you soon for Christmas services.